Welcome to the Green Root Podcast, the official podcast now of Eco Integrity Alliance, eco integrityalliance.org. I am your host, Josh Schlossberg. For this episode, I'd like to welcome Dominic Della Sala. Dominic is Chief Scientist at Wild Heritage. He's the former president of the Society for Conservation Biology North America, and he's the author of over 300 science papers and books, including his new book, Conservation Science and Advocacy for a Planet in Peril, Speaking Truth to Power. Welcome to the Green Root Podcast, Dominic. Great. Thanks, Josh, for having me on today. Absolutely. Really glad you're here and we're going to talk about wildfire and forests, of which Dominic is an expert in many ways, which you'll find out. Uh, but before we get into that, I just want to quickly announce to listeners Eco Integrity Alliance's summer campaign that we're kicking off next week. We've nicknamed it Firewise, not Logging Lies. We might change the title. <laughs> we're focusing on pressuring Congress to stop spending money. So we're talking $3.3 in the last infra infrastructure bill alone. Uh, to log public forests under the guise of, quote, wildfire risk reduction, and instead spend that money saving homes and lives by making them firewise, which is tending an area up to 100 feet around a home. We've got a billboard going up next week in Denver because Senator Bennett, Senator Hickenlooper, and Representative Nagoose here in Colorado, they're kind of leading the charge nationwide in this, what we're calling a phony logging scheme. We've got a national action alert. We'll have up on the website, press releases to media, opinion pieces, and letters to the editor newspapers. And we have a GoFundMe to raise enough money to try to keep the billboard up all summer. And we're planning a firewise demonstration, maybe even a contest around it. So in short, we wanna see every Western state put the heat on Congress this summer on the issue. Now let's talk to our esteemed guest, Dominic Della Sala. So you have studied wildfire and you have experienced wildfire. Let's start with, with that, your physical experience with wildfire coming very close to home. Yeah, so it was during the Almeida fire in 2020, around the Labor Day weekend, that much of Oregon was experiencing these urban conflagrations. And the one, uh, the Almeida fire down here in Southern Oregon, took out uh, about 3,000 structures in my hometown of Talent and nearby Phoenix, Oregon. And the irony in all of this, and this is kind of a surreal part of the story, if you will, but the day of the fire, before the fire was even known to anybody, I was sitting in front of my computer, as I normally do, because I read the climate change tea leaves. I'm on top of all the latest climate projections I've published on that. I track what the weather systems are doing, because you can pretty much figure out where the big fires are going to be based on whether we're in a drought or a heat dome. And while I was writing an opinion piece about sending out a warning signal to uh, everyone in my community and the state of Oregon about I was seeing the perfect storm aligning where we had triple digit temperatures for a couple of weeks, we had single digit humidity levels, we were in an extreme drought. And we had these unusually high winds cross-continental coming out of the east flanks, which are pretty much abnormal that time of the year. And they were high winds. And I was warning that I was worried about uh, you know, this 
event could result in a major fire that affects Western towns and had been warning uh, decision makers for years that money spent in the backcountry logging was not going to save homes or, or towns. And then my power went off while I'm in the middle of writing the op-ed. And naturally, you know, you go outside, hey, what's going on? Why is the power going off? And there's this big cloud of smoke descending on my community. And it was such a surreal event, the hair on the back of my neck just stood up and I realized that climate change had arrived at my doorstep that day, even though I'd been publishing about it, sending out warning signals, and yet I was staring it right there in my face. Within a couple of hours of when the initial ignition happened, which was in nearby Ashland, the fire traveled about seven or eight miles to reach almost my doorstep within a couple of hours. And my community, having no warning system, not prepared for this, took several hours to evacuate and we weren't allowed back into our homes for 10 days. Unfortunately, my house didn't burn down, but uh, about half of the downtown areas was gone. And so was the nearby town of Phoenix. So mm -hmm. the damage was extensive. It was avoidable if our decision makers would only listen to folks that are saying, hey, these are climate change events. We need to get off of fossil fuels, protect forests for carbon and get these communities prepared. But instead, as you mentioned, there's billions of dollars going into backcountry logging that's only going to intensify the situation over time. Well, that's a really great summary. And uh, yeah, I'm really, really bummed that you had to experience that close up. Glad that your house was okay. But yeah, sooner or later, I don't want to be too negative, but it, it's coming for all of us who are living out in the West. I'm here in Colorado and this area where I actually just looked it up and it's supposed to be one of the top 10 most, I want to say dangerous uh, fire prone areas in the country, you know, whatever that's based on. But uh, yeah, so a lot of our listeners, probably all the listeners who will be hearing this, they know that wildfire is a natural, ecologically essential process in the forest. So the forests are good. The issue is when it comes into human communities. Now, is it true or is it not true that fires are getting, quote, worse? Well, it depends on what you be, what you mean by worse. And so let's kind of tease that apart for a bit. Uh, and, you know, when we, as I mentioned early on, if I want to know where the big fires are, I get it on the drought monitoring map. And I take a look at that and I can put a pin in those big blobs of extreme drought, unprecedented drought, and say, you know, this is where we're going to see some really big fires. And as People in the Southwest and in Colorado know you're going through unprecedented drought cycles and the drought cycles are extended over a longer period of time. When you couple that with extreme heat, heat domes, you know, one day in Colorado, you could have a snowstorm. The next day you're in the 90s and, and higher. And that those kinds of extreme events, when they occur together, we call those compounded extreme events. We're seeing more of those around the planet, whether you're in the Southwest and dealing with fires or you're in the Southeast and dealing with hurricanes. We're seeing more of these compounded extreme events because of how we're treating the atmosphere as a dumping ground for carbon dioxide and other greenhouse emissions. 
at least a good chunk of that is coming from how we are mishandling our forest. We chop down those trees and most of the carbon goes into the atmosphere along with fossil fuels. And we're currently in the situation we're in today. So what we are seeing in these big drought and heat domes are bigger fires. They're not necessarily more severe. Mm -hmm. And we measure severity by, for example, the mortality of trees in different patches. Uh, that seems to be pretty proportional to the size of the fire matrix, the fire complex. But we are seeing an increase in acres burned. And I think it's important to point out, and this may be counterintuitive, but we're in an overall fire deficit. And in the early part of the 1900s, a lot more acres were burning, whether they were coming from natural ignitions or even before that, uh, from cultural burning practices of uh, indigenous communities, there were a lot more acres burning. They weren't all forests. They were in grasslands, sage, sage uh, communities. It's important to point that out, that in spite of this legislation aimed at increasing logging, a lot of these fires are occurring in sage and grassland ecosystems, including some that have affected Colorado. And what are you going to do? Go out there with a chainsaw and mow down a bunch of grass? It's just not, it's not practical. And it's hyperbola around the fire issue. We need more fire in our ecosystems under safe conditions. Though that window is rapidly declining because of climate change and how much logging we've done in the backcountry, when you bring those two together, you're seeing the kinds of big fire events we're getting today. Not only the size is going up, but in areas that have been extensively logged, that's where we're seeing uncharacteristically large patches of high severity burn areas, not in the natural systems, not in the roadless areas, the national parks, they burn the way nature uh, design those forests and, and ecosystems to burn. When you get into the um, highly logged areas, that's when we're in trouble, especially during extreme fire weather. Sure. Yeah. Here in Colorado, not far from where I live and where I did used to live near Boulder. So we had the Marshall fire and the, the, the most destructive fires and it burned down the most homes. It was exclusively in well grasslands and residential neighborhoods so it wasn't even in forests and yet they're still using that as a way to push more logging now two summers ago we did have two of our largest fires in colorado history i believe and those were in the backcountry and so the issue is is this about fuels which is just an industry name for trees or is this about like you said hot temperatures drought and coinciding with high winds right and if if that's the case if the latter is the case is there really anything you can do to prevent these fires from burning yeah um well i mean any classic fire Ecology textbook talks about the fire behavior triangle. If you could think of what governs fire behavior as a triangle, you've got the three axes that are made up of so-called fuels. I call it flammable vegetation because it's habitat. It's not just some commodity that needs to be removed. So you've got that part of the triangle. The other axis would be topography like mountains. It's different whether you're at the base of a mountain and in the basin or whether you're up high in the alpine areas, the fires are going to differ. And then you've got climate. And so the textbooks to, up to now have assumed it's an equilateral triangle. You know, all the axes influence fire behavior to a degree. 
relatively the same. There's variability in that depending on where you are in the, in the world. But uh, what's happening now is because we're overheating the planet, we've got these droughts, we've got extreme uh, temperatures, extreme winds, that's become the top-down driver and a fire behavior, and it's no longer uh, an equilateral triangle. We kind of mash down the axes, and it's become mostly about uh, how extreme fire weather is driving these big fires, and it's blowing right through areas that have been thinned, have had prescribed burning, that have been post-fire logged. It's blown right through them. And in many cases, those places that have been logged are going to exacerbate the intensity and therefore the severity effects on the ground. Uh, and there are things we can be doing, but it's not logging in the backcountry. Now, I also want to point out that under certain conditions, if everything is done right, if you remove only the small trees, you don't take out the overstory fire resistant trees, you leave the canopies intact you come back with prescribed burning, you don't introduce cows that bring in invasive flammable weeds, you close your road system, you don't damage your soils. If you do everything perfectly correct under moderate fire weather, you can reduce the fire intensity. But it's so rare that that happens because then the cows come back in, the roads are there as an ignition source, you have to take the big trees to pay for the small trees, it just isn't going to make an impact or a significant dent on a climate weather driven fire event because that has become the new abnormal. I'm not saying it's always going to fail. There are examples we can point to, but they're becoming the exception and not the rule. Yeah. And I think it's important to at least occasionally steel man, you know, as opposed to straw man. So steel man, the industry arguments. And so what you're saying is in situations in which it's moderate fire weather, it may be able to limit the spread. But those are the fires that we should be let burning anyway. And those aren't the ones that are necessarily a threat to our communities. So the thing that they can actually do is not really that valuable. <laughs> That's a really good point. And I think that, you know, the most cost effective means for treating large landscapes to reduce flammable uh, vegetation is to work with fire for ecosystem benefits, whether that is through a prescribed natural fire, through an ignition from lightning, for example, or from cultural burning practices that are applied in the right ecosystems during the right times of the year, those could put more fire on the landscape and on a much bigger scale under safe conditions. But when we look at these big fires, they escape. Uh, most of those big fires escape because of extreme fire weather. You know, the Forest Service has a, a long history of putting out something like 98% of all fire starts. It's the 2% that are burning over the majority of the, of the acres that are escaping fire containment during extreme fire weather. And what you see with these air tankers is basically an air show hmm. under those conditions. And you're, you're better off if you're doing that in the back country, just taking those planes and fly over the community and throw the money out the window <laughs> because uh, people will be a lot happier and it'll have the same effect. It will not change fire behavior in the back country under extreme fire weather. It might help firefighters with the fire safety as they're back there, but you don't want them back there under uns unsafe conditions anyhow. It's a great point. So the 
Marshall fire here in Colorado. So that was actually in December, which it's like, what we thought we had fire season. Nope. Fire season all year round. Now it was quite warm. It was a drought and we had very, very high winds. So how did they put out the fire? Oh, well, the winds died and it snowed. That's what put out the fire. Right. And had it been snowing and not windy prior, it wouldn't have probably started much at all. So that's always, I don't know about always, but it seems like nine times out of 10, maybe even more, that's what happens. So the weather changes, that puts out the fire. Of course, there are things we can do. So this is the area around the homes. There is some stuff, wildland urban interface. I don't want to get too much in the weeds here, but there's some stuff that I've seen that I'm like, all right, so this random patch you just like carve out of the woods in the middle of nowhere is going to do what exactly? I think a lot of it is sort of just busy work, um, false sense of security stuff. Um, there, there may well be, all right, here's the edge of the, you know, the, the local forest. And then here's all of a sudden where all the neighborhood is. And then we have a bit of a, a fire line defensible space. I don't know, maybe that can be argued in some circumstances. But what I'm seeing here in Colorado is just random willy nilly, just like, yeah, we'll cut here now. And it's like, there's, there's no way that this is going to work. And even if it did, it's like a needle, needle in the haystack, right? Like, well, if this fire starts exactly here and it, and it goes through this narrow corridor, we'll have solved the problem. Give me a break. Yeah, you're absolutely right. My colleagues and I did a, um, a peer-reviewed paper in the journal Biological Conservation that came out, I think it was in March. And we asked the question, has Western fire suppression and uh, large-scale active management become a contemporary version of Sisyphus? <laughs> and, you know, in the, in the Greek uh, parable, Sisyphus is, you know, pushing that big boulder uphill because Hades put him there for eternity because he tried to lock up Hades and it didn't work. So Hades got even with uh, Sisyphus and said, you got to push this boulder uphill for e eternity. And this is, you know, the, the analogy applies to the Forest Service. And there's one graph that we put in our, our paper that shows acres burning over time and the amount of money spent on fire suppression over the same time period. Mm -hmm. And it's skyrocketing. Both of them are going up. Mm -hmm. So there's your version of Sisyphus. The boulder's getting bigger. In this case, the boulder is climate change. And yet the agency is now swimming in cash to the point where they're doing treatments that aren't going to have much, if any, effect. An example, fuel breaks. Under certain conditions, if you do everything right, maybe your fuel break protects a community, uh, but you got to keep maintaining it. It'll grow back every you know, five or 10 years, depending on site conditions. And then what about extreme winds? And you know, here in Oregon, the Eagle Creek fire uh, jumped the Columbia River Gorge. It was several miles ahead of the flame fr front that firebrands were being thrown by the fire. So, you know, unless you're going to pave everything into a parking lot and put up Walmarts everywhere, you know, maybe then you won't get these big fires. But, you know, the other example I'll give you is my town of Talent, Oregon. That was a structure, the structure burned. And they sunk millions of dollars into logging in the backcountry. And yet it was a structure to structure fire. It had nothing to do with the thinning, the prescribed burning in the backcountry, because the wildland urban interface uh, is being viewed as a buffer that can go over a mile and a half out from the nearest structure.
So if you're a mile and a half away and your firebrands are blowing all over the place, you're just throwing money at a bad problem and it's not going to solve the problem. The only way we get out of this mess, we solve for climate change and we protect homes around that 100 foot space and you do home hardening. Yeah, absolutely. So again, with the Marshall Fire, it was a structure to structure in many cases. And it was literally burning through, literally burning through Walmart parking lots. <laughs> There's this video online. It was Walmart or Target, one of those places, and the fire was burning right through the outskirts of it. So yeah, that's that's the reality of the situation. But I do think like in the case of Sisyphus, it's job security, right? Like he has a role now. So the Forest Service, it gives him something to do. Oh, look, we're doing this thing and uh it's we're doing stuff we're we're working on it it's important a lot of the political situation this is just my personal opinion is just is a smokescreen it's just kind of busy work to make it seem like things are being done but here's a case in which they're literally doing things that at best are doing nothing in many cases are making the forest conditions worse you know drying it out opening it more to the spread of flames because of wind can go in and they're literally not doing very much in regards to the other stuff. There is some funding for sure for Firewise stuff, but it's a drop in the bucket. It ain't, ain't 3.3 billion. I'll tell you that right now. Uh, so we're trying to keep shifting that attention. It's like, yes, you're right. There is an issue. We need to do something. Of course, the ultimate issue, and, and we don't need to get into it in this because this that's probably the most controversial is should we be continuing to build further and further into the forest zoning issues? Let's 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 focus maybe on, you know, let's protect the homes that have already been built. But I do think that's a conversation, an unpopular conversation that needs to be had. You don't you don't get to build in a flood zone. Right. Uh, or there's at least lots of precautions and, and uh, insurance issues. So we're going to have to be thinking about that more and more. But I did want to just ask you about some of your other any of your other studies on the topic that you'd like to mention, bring up. Yeah, a couple of points. I, I do want to comment on what you just said, because I think it's important and we uh, have written about it as well. So we're on the same page on that. But, you know, in one of my papers, we've got this graphic about acres burning going back to the early 1900s. And, you know, your listeners might want to read the book by Timothy Egan, The Big Burn. Fascinating historical account of the birth of the Forest Service and which really was the fire service. That's why they came into being, and, you know, Gifford Pinchot's vision uh, of the highest and best use for the greatest number uh, really was about fires. And, you know, much of the Rockies were burning in 1910 and people lost their lives, towns burned to the ground. It was hot and dry during that period. So big fires were going through the Rockies. So the early part of the 1900s, you had a lot of acres burning and suppression was based, you know, picking shovels and horses back there trying to stomp out fires, which isn't going to happen, you know, in, you know, the big fire events. But that's what they did. Uh, and then around the 1940s, we started to get a cool down in the climate and uh, it lasted for a few decades at the time the Forest Service was ramping up to become a militarized operation of fire suppression. They were getting really good at extinguishing fires. You know, a fire starts at 10 a.m. It's got to be out by 2 p.m. the next day or whatever that saying was. And Smokey Bear, 
Mm -hmm. uh, came into being. And that became the policy of the Forest Service. We got to put out all the ignitions. While there was an explosion of home growth into these dangerous places that, you know, mm. like Colorado and places that where it's going to burn at some point. And the agency was flexing its muscle. Hey, we could put all these fires out. No problem. We're in a cool cycle. Yeah. Militarized operations. We get them all mostly right around 1980s. We started to see this overheating of the planet. And that's when a lot of the uh, emphasis uh, started about climate change. And, you know, the work of Dr. James Hansen at NASA, the Goddard Space Center, he did a lot of the early work uh, announcing to at least, at least the U.S. Senate that we were in a major climate uh, overheating phase. And at that time, the acres burning start to increase. And you still have an explosion of homes being built into these dangerous places. And you've got these county zoning ordinances that are just ignoring this because this is money in the coffers and you know towns are growing, which is you know a good thing economically, but they're growing in the wrong places. And so we've got this perfect storm now. We've got an overheating climate and the uh, agency is just throwing more technology at trying to put out fires. They're using drones, you know, there's talk about uh, you know, using more advanced detection means, maybe putting out fires at night when the humidity levels are higher. You know, the technology is not going to solve this. The only way to solve this is we've got to transition out of burning fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas. Colorado's big on coal, and so is the rest of the, the Rockies. Fracking. These are all the wrong ways of dealing with our energy crisis that are going to feed back into treating our atmosphere as a dumping ground for emissions that are gonna then cause more fires down the road. And then we couple that with logging and here we are off at the races and Sisyphus isn't working and communities are becoming more unsafe. Yeah, well, you framed that in a way that I hadn't thought of before. I guess I didn't realize that the reason we started building all of these homes out there is because it was in a sense an analogy could be it was like low tide right so the the yeah. beach was open it's like hey let's build on the beach this is great <laughs> and then it's like oh shit and yeah. so this was just inevitable so that's that's a really interesting so it would probably inevitable even without um you know the exacerbation with climate change but then you you know the the wave pulls in and then it's like actually a tsunami so yeah. that's that's really disturbing and uh I think this is a good transition for so the recent Supreme Court decision that roughly that the EPA has its powers should be limited to deal with greenhouse gas emission and regulation of power plants. Doesn't that mean that now is the perfect time to go all in for protecting forests as a climate buffer? Did you say that's a worthwhile? Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a really good point. I'm kind of depressed at what SCOTUS has been doing these days. Uh, and that just kind of piles on to the, the pain the country's going through. And at least a lot of that pain is not going to be felt immediately, but it will be felt. And especially the uh, deregulation of power emissions, which is coming at the absolute worst time. I don't know how this administration goes into the climate summit meetings, uh, the global meetings in November without feeling the same way. So they're going to have to get creative 
about what they do, whether it's through executive order or some other means. Um, it has to be done in com combination with natural climate solutions. They can't, I mean, we're not gonna stop the overheating of the planet by doing one and not the other. They have to be done simultaneous and at scale. We need a moonshot right now. And we're not, we're going in the opposite direction, which is where the country is going in general, in my opinion, the opposite direction. We're stepping back when we should be taking a major leap forward. And the way to do that is to really scale up renewable clean energies, getting off of fossil fuels and scaling up forest protections. We know from our own research um, that there are about 50 million acres or so of mature forest, mature and old growth forest on federal lands throughout the, uh, the lower 48 states that are at risk to logging. And those federal forests have extraordinary amounts of carbon that they've been holding on to, atmospheric carbon they've been storing for centuries. They have enormous biodiversity. They clean our drinking water. And those are our best natural climate solutions as far as forests go, go. Wetlands also can act as a natural buffer, especially in coastal areas. Riparian forest along streams can help to lessen flood impacts. You know, nature can, can help us. It can't do it alone. I mean, she's got limitations, right. which is why we've got to also keep the dinosaur carbon in the ground and pull down as much atmospheric carbon as we can to store in ecosystems. And forests are the best terrestrial ecosystems on the planet for doing natural carbon drawdown. We have no technology that compares to the capacity of forests, particularly the older trees and the mature and old growth forests to pull atmospheric carbon and store it safely. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that sounds, pretty reasonable to me but i guess my last question for you to round this out is why is it so hard for us to get this information across the stuff to do with wildfire with logging firewise the fact that forests are these climate buffers i mean i've been saying stuff like this for about 15 years you've been saying it for a lot longer than that so i mean is this media scientists grassroots organizing voting like what 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 do we need to do and do we need to do anything any differently because aren't we kind of losing <laughs> yeah you know it's hard to remain optimistic but i do have grandkids and so i'm going to continue to do my part and continue to look at the glass as half full even though it's a scary situation again you know this has been going on for at least 50 years now what we've seen with the scotus decisions mm -hmm. one by one have been building since the time of reagan the country was really close to having legislation on climate change back in Reagan's time when James Hansen uh, was in front of the US Senate. It was Reagan that intervened and basically put the kibosh on climate change legislation that could have passed at that time. So we have this big legacy of well-funded campaigns of misinformation, disinformation, to just obscure the truth, which is why I wrote that book subtitled Speaking Truth to, to, uh, to Power, because we all need to be speaking out for truth. And the, and the fact of the matter is that we're in a ramp up in the wrong direction with emissions. And most scientists give us about a decade before it becomes uh, severe. And we're in a, a no-win scenario where it can't be turned around. So, uh, you know, we're, we're looking 
right in the we're, we got our heads in the in the jaws of a lion right now because most of the anti-environmental campaigns are incredibly funded by uh, industry like the oil and, and uh, coal companies and we're small grassroots organizations with that that are there just saying hey wait wait a minute this is not right uh, you're heading in the direction that's just going to make the planet a lot worse for future generations, but we're outfunded. Uh, the, the good part of it is that we have the voice of truth on our side. We have the science on our side. We just need to become a political force that will be paid attention to. And, and a lot of the legislation that's coming out of Congress that's pushing us in the wrong direction just look at the background of those uh, representatives, how much money, PAC money they're getting from the companies that they're supporting. But whether, you know, we're, we're talking about the 1960s and 70s with the tobacco industry funding anti-cancer research or the oil and gas companies funding initially oil uh, anti-climate change research. Uh, and we've got, you know, a ton of PAC money coming in from timber interests that are pushing back on forest as a natural climate solution, unless those forests have been logged and turned into wood products, which is just disinformation. So, I mean, that's what we're up again against, but we don't give up because we have the voice of reason, the voice of truth and the power of numbers. If we can organize as grassroots, I have so much faith, so much confidence in the youth movement, what Greta Thunberg is doing. I have my own kids and my grandkids to think about. So I do my part as an elder to help the young people and their energy and their leadership get us through this crazy time because the glass is still full, half full. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dominic. You bet.